Welcome to Mad Influence. Before we start today, I just want to quickly say thank you so much to all the new listeners. And if you have been enjoying the episode so far, if you can please subscribe, leave a review or rate the podcast, it will really help it to grow. This is a podcast about how the marketing industry uses its influence on society. We all know that marketers can have a bad rep. Let's be honest, we're one of the least trusted professions in the world, ranking somewhere alongside politicians and journalists at the bottom of every poll from the last few years. But what about the people who use their positions of influence to spread positive messages, entertain the world or inspire social change? I'm Helen Saul, I work in brand marketing and I'm hosting this podcast so that I can speak to some of these people about our role in influencing culture and investigate how we can all use our power more for good. Today's guest is Adam Smith, founder of The Real Junk Food Project, the global initiative which intercepts surplus food and redistributes it to feed people. Since launch in 2013, it has rescued over 14 million meals. Adam was inspired to set up the project after seeing food waste firsthand in his role as a head chef for over 10 years in Australia. Adam's empathy for helping others comes after battling his own personal struggles. He has been open about a difficult background, experiencing mental health problems and recovering from substance abuse. Today, Adam has inspired millions of people, featured on the cover of The Big Issue North, given a TEDx talk and will be releasing his autobiography later this year. Adam has been voted one of the 40 most influential men in the world by Ask Men and featured in the Telegraph's food and drink power list. After saving thousands of tons of food waste, Adam is very honest about his goals for the future. We don't want to be here in 10, 15, 20 years time. We want to be teaching the next generation of children to grow up and not depend on food banks and pay-as-you-go cafes. Our model is literally to put ourselves out of business, but we cannot do it alone. Every single person's actions, the way you buy food, handle food, is going to have an impact on our environment and on our society. Well, thank you so much for joining, Adam. Where I would really like to start is to understand what it was that led you to become a chef and why you then decided to set up the Real Junk Food Project. Yeah, well, I fell into catering. I had no intentions of becoming a chef. I did it because I was walking out of jobs uh, in office work and I just wasn't suited to the nine to five monitor Friday. And I think it was a friend at the time who offered me a, a position washing pots up in a TGI Friday's restaurant. And it was on Boxing Day, I think I started. And it was like the busiest shift I've ever worked in my life. And I was there till two o'clock in the morning, completely soaking wet. Just It was just a mess. It was so busy. And um, I went back the next day. And I think that's a sign for anybody, really, in, in, in just in life in general. I, I joke about it quite a lot about volunteers who have to do rubbish jobs on the first time that they come and work for the Real Junkie Project and how they still end up coming back regardless. And um, I went back and then I decided that I didn't want to fry processed foods any longer in an American restaurant and learn how to do it properly. So I then went off and learned how to be a chef and yeah, just worked my way up really and became a head chef of a restaurant in Melbourne. Obviously that led me onto the journey and the path of working on farms and eventually creating the Real Junkie Project. Uh, and now I've, I've, I'm in a position where I kind of consult with cafes and restaurants and establishments about how to be better food establishments. Yeah, just w- wanted to bring you back to the first job that you mentioned, which you, I think, described as a rubbish job at TJI Fridays. <laughs> and I wondered if actually, like, on reflection now, are there any things about that that you take into your work ethic today? All the time. I mean, 
the thing is about American kind of chain restaurants, especially, is they're very structured and they develop skills in you that you don't realize until you actually uh, have to put them into practice elsewhere. So just things like making sure your preparation was done before service and you didn't have to prepare during service. You know, it helped me a lot and it helped me when I was training younger chefs as well to kind of get them into good habits and good practices and timekeeping. And I mean, we were knocking out food starters in seven minutes and mains in 12 minutes. It was all tracked from head office. And so, you were, you know, you were working at such speed under such pressure. And that just helped me with all sorts of things in life. So there were some incredible skills that I learned and I, I value my time there massively. Yeah, definitely. And obviously now what you do today is the Real Junk Food Project. If I asked you to explain it like in a sentence, how would you best explain it? It is a enterprise that stops food waste and diverts it back to people whilst offering a circular economy model to gain access to that. And that's what we refer to as pay you feel. So money, time or skills and access to food. And, um, you know, when we're talking about it today, you've saved a huge amount of food from going to waste. You've mm-hmm. fed millions of people. It's really a massive operation. But I wondered if we took it back to when you first started out and I think it was initially just a first page you like cafe. Back then, did you have the aspirations for it to be what it is today? Well, when I came up with the idea originally, it was 22nd of February 2013 when I was still on the farm in three hours north of Melbourne in Australia. And I was in a desert bashing trees with almonds in it and trying to harvest these almonds. And at the time when I came up with it, I just said the words, the real junk food project. And I said, I'm going to feed the world. So from the very, very first moment that I had this kind of epiphany of what I was about to do next in my personal and professional life, even from those very, very early days, it was always about trying to feed the world. And it wasn't me stood behind a stove with like one giant pot with a ladle, like with people in a queue kind of dishing it out to them. The feeding the world part of it was about how could I educate people and expose the problem so that I could empower people into a better position to try to hopefully uh, within a generation stop the levels of waste that were happening even if it was just about redistributing it but ideally I'd like it to come to a point where it's about prevention. Yeah I think that's a particularly important point actually because well there's a few things you can look at stopping food from going to waste and you can look at helping people out that don't have food but when we're talking about actually tackling the root of the the problem and why these people are hungry in the first place what are your thoughts on that and the way that we address it? So I believe that we don't actually tackle any problems we sustain both we sustain the levels of food waste, if not, it's increased over my time anyway, and it's probably at the worst it's ever been. And likewise, from a poverty perspective, and I constantly shout out very loudly about the fact that we need to segregate the two issues. And like you said, to tackle them at the root cause, we need to tackle hunger and uh, the food poverty situations from a poverty perspective, from a social perspective. And we need to tackle food waste from an environmental perspective, because if we carry on the way that we're going, you know, it will spiral so much out of control that we won't be able to separate the two and either the people or the planet will end up disappearing first. And, you know, I've seen that escalate on a scale which has probably never been seen in our lifetimes before or even in human history before. So I don't believe that we actually are doing anything for both. I think we talk a lot about it. I think there's a lot of resources and there's a lot of passionate people out there that are trying to do something about it. But unfortunately, we're quite unique in our approach that we have from day one said that we will not feed poor people with surplus food. We are here to stop food waste. And as a byproduct to what we do, 
were able to feed people in need without stigmatizing any further and collaboratively were able to empower them into situations where they feel like they're contributing to the bigger picture rather than feeling like they're somebody who needs it because they're poor or vulnerable or in need and I refuse to do that so there's a long long way to go um, but I truly believe that with more education and more exposure around the problem you know what we, we've never been quiet about what we do I believe that's a lot of people out there are going to start feeling like this is something that they can do that's relative to them that they can be part of to make changes you know food waste is pivotal for so many environmental problems in, on, this, on this planet uh, the more and more exposure we have on that the more and more that we all kind of keep on the same track about fighting those issues from an environmental perspective and i believe that our habits around food will gradually change hopefully improve and, and you know hopefully will eradicate some of the issues that we're facing today definitely and i'm really interested about the exposure that you're talking about i come from the perspective of i interview lots of people that either they work in marketing or communications or often run their own businesses and have to promote them so how is it that you have ha had the exposure for the Real Junk Food Project? I've seen that you've featured in a lot of media and press. Is that your tactic or are there different methods? Well, first and foremost, our charitable objectives are to uh, reduce food waste and, and, and prevent it from happening. And secondly, education. So we don't have an incentive to go out and source media or, or exposure. It comes with the situation, really. It comes with our operations and our practices. So, but I think it's mainly to do with how we do it. And I think it's because we've become so removed from the, our source of food and our relationship with food that what we're doing is seen as radical. So, you know, I've been featured in all sorts of these media outlets that refer to me as like a kind of radical solution to food waste, etc. And the scourge of food waste, I think the big issue coined me as I don't see what we do as radicalised whatsoever. You know, I'm basically stopping food from going to waste and then feeding it to people and letting them pay what they want. But because it's seen that way, it's not a funding-dependent charitable organisation. And what I mean by that is that we don't have to go out and seek funds in order to do what we do. Uh, we get grants and donations and paid for donations and we have income streams to support what we do. But because we're not funding-dependent, it means we can manoeuvre and we can fight fire, we can deal with ad hoc situations. So COVID is a great example in March where we've gone from four employees and a, uh, a couple of dozen volunteers to nearly 20 employees, several vehicles, a 15,000 square foot warehouse, two new supermarkets and another 300 volunteers because we adapted and we evolved very, very quickly because we're not dependent on funding. So it didn't restrict us in terms of what we could or couldn't do. And it helped us a lot because it exposed us to a whole new world of networks and contacts when it came to food and how we can handle food and then now we've got even bigger relationships because of what we did with the likes of food contractors of, of school contractors of, of wholesalers you know i'm speaking to the ceo of british airways about aviation surplus food we're speaking to a huge aviation caterer so we've just always evolved and adapted into what we're doing and because we do those things and we get access to large volumes of food and we do really big and wonderful things with them big events like kindness christmas we just did over december 2020 where we fed nearly 8,000 hampers for free delivered to people's houses anybody could register anybody got it and they got toys and gifts for the child as well and because we do these things the media love it because it's always seen as something quite on edge and quite quirky and, and positive as well i think it's always been about trying to spin the positive even in negative times so 
one of the great examples of what we do is we've been burgled, I think, maybe three or four occasions in our seven-year life in different premises. And on each occasion when we've been burgled, we've gone out and apologised to the burglars, to the offenders. And we've said, if you'd have just come and asked us, we would have given you food, we would have given you money. And we're sorry that you felt like you had to go to those lengths, like you smashed through a window and nearly severed you know, all your limbs climbing through some incredibly sharp single plane glass in order to get nothing because there was no money and, and, and no food on site. You know? and so we've gone out and apologised. And because we've got that approach to it, first of all, it stops social media from beginning negative. You know, negative posts create much more negativity. So we always try and spin it into a positive. And because we've got that approach, the press love it because they're like, why are they not you know, swearing and cursing at these burglars? Why are they not being negative? Why is where's the headline? It's like, nope. We will kill them with kindness and um, you know, we will never ever be led down that path because we've got this single goal of trying to feed the world and stop food waste. And we will keep doing that no matter what these hurdles we get thrown at us. And I think yeah. because of that approach, because of that momentum, because of that positivity, we get the exposure and rightly so as well, you know, we do some incredible things and it's because of that, you know, that thought process, which is probably seen as radical because, you know, if you if you read a book about social entrepreneurship you probably wouldn't find anything about the real drinker project in there because we don't do anything by the book whatsoever so i think we have a very interesting approach and, and it gets the credit it deserves and we do get a lot of attention and obviously there's a backstory to it given the fact that uh, i'm involved given what's happened to me personally and the story that i've gone on in order to create this and the, the focus that i have now so a lot of people are interested in that part of it as well yeah, just to give a little bit of context, maybe if there's anyone who's joining the podcast that hasn't heard it before, can you just explain a little bit about it or anything that you might think is relevant? Yeah, uh, 2010 was it? So yeah, 10 years ago, I was found in a car and pronounced dead at the scene after a serious suicide attempt. And I recovered a couple of days later and yeah, spent the last 10 years in recovery and therapy and a lot of things for us you know working on myself and working on the project and founding the project and prior to that I spent probably between 10 and 15 years uh, institutionalized into care homes sectioned into mental health homes I spent time on remand in prison I had problems with drugs and alcohol I was cheated on partners I was not a very nice person and it was all from the ages of 10 really when I had a very very serious incident that happened uh, involving family members uh, and domestic violence and being woken up by the police and you know a, a really really serious traumatic incident and from then on you know even from the ages of 10 11 12 I was running away from home and stealing and becoming very sexualized and yeah it led all the way to the point in, in 2010 where I was actually found dead so yeah I had a very very dysfunctional childhood some of it was self-inflicted as I got older but it all stemmed back to that single point of trauma that kind of changed my life forever, really. Thank you for sharing that. And I can see why people find your story really inspiring. And I know it's something that you've been open about before online. And I wondered, is that something, is it for you important to share it with other people so they can see the story of the things that you overcame to where you are today? Or are there any negative sides to that? For example, do you now get inundated with people that want to talk to you about the same topic? Yeah, I think for me, there was an end. Uh, you know, I was found dead. And there's not many people on the planet that have experienced that and still been able to come out of it. And, you know, there's some people on the planet that have got to those depths and are not with us anymore. And 
suicide, especially in men of my generation, 18 to 35, is rife at the moment. It's a very, very hot topic. And I just feel like the more I speak out about the issues that I had, the more that people relate to it. And, you know, I've had some incredible messages, especially for LinkedIn posts that I did about my kind of last 10 year journey and where I was and where I've come to now. You know, it had 5.3 million hits and potential book deal out of it in a film, uh, potentially as well. And, and obviously podcasting with people like yourselves, which I'm incredibly grateful to be invited to. And it's because I think people sense that there's a story here that might inspire and empower people. And then the private messages I received at the back of it, the, the positive ones are people just saying, been there, done it, thanks for talking about it, you've made me feel so much better. Some people saying to me, I really need to read this today because it just had a terrible year, especially after what happened in 2020. People just needed some kind of positivity and to see that there was, you know, people doing great things, uh, even in such difficult times. The difficult part of it was when people started messaging me, kind of expecting me to have the answers. And I replied to every single person that contacted me, no matter what. And even if it's a spam, I still reply back to it and say, no, thank you. I'm that kind of person. And I, I always make the effort. And I've had some really interesting messages around people asking me to contact their relatives and stop them from committing suicide. and you know, somebody wanted me to bring up his daughter in America and, and, and um, stop her from killing herself. And I was like, I can't do that. And he was like, oh, I wasn't really expecting that response from somebody like you. And I was like, did you need someone like me? Like, I'm, I, I'm, I don't have the answers. I'm not a trained therapist. What I'm trying to do is get my story across to show people that there are ways that people can get out of this. And I think what you have to pinpoint is that people just think there's these, like, get-rich-quick schemes of dealing with therapy as though like there's a magic answer or a button that you press and all of a sudden you know you're in a position like I'm in where I'm probably the best I've ever been physically mentally and professionally but that was a 10-year journey and I still made mistakes and I still hurt people um I just didn't allow myself to get back to the position that I was when I was found in that car you know really working on my own mental health on my trauma being diagnosed with autism and working on all the stuff around kind of the condition that I have and you know allowing myself to be vulnerable conflict resolution all those incredible things that you have to do as a human being that i didn't have a role model for to teach me those things i've had to go out and learn them and, and do it by making mistakes it wasn't an easy journey i'm just showing people where you can potentially end up if you decide to make those changes if you decide you want to be a better person if you decide you no longer want to do the things that you are doing to yourself or to others around you as well so i think it's really really important one to speak out about it i think it's really important to put a sense of perspective on it and to get people to understand that you know i didn't just instantly change because i didn't and i'm still in the process of being a better person i just am the best i've ever been in comparison to where i was um, and to give people an understanding that this isn't just some kind of guy coming out and claiming that he's got all the answers yeah absolutely and i think it's yeah such an important point that you made about not necessarily having all the answers or indeed any of the answers I think it's more just that people have someone that they can relate to and they can see a story and then maybe that can make them seek the answers so thank you for explaining that I also when we were talking about that it just made me think a little bit about the past year because I know uh, we've seen increase of people seeing serious effects on their mental health as a result of coronavirus and also it reminded me of something you mentioned earlier in terms of the coronavirus impacting the work that you're doing at the Real Junk Food Project. And I just wondered, in your industry, how has coronavirus affected 
you and your team? So the food system is an ever constant conveyor belt and they are constantly producing and constantly manufacturing and constantly delivering and constantly transporting food all over the world. It never stops. And when the original lockdown happened back in March, April time, this conveyor belt stopped and we intersected a lot of the food and now there were vast, vast quantities of it. And what it did is it exposed a very, very fragile food system in this country when it comes to logistics. I think we've come to realise now, you know, nine, ten months later, that this country is pretty much held up by supermarket workers, NHS staff and delivery drivers. Those people literally keep this country going. And it was really interesting how fragile the food industry really was. So we were dealing with vast quantities and we were getting 200 pallets shipped to us rather than before we were doing maybe a half a pallet, you know, and so the quantities went up massively and the relationships were opening up and doors were opening up and you know we just adapted to it and we just I mean there was times even thinking back now some of the amount of food that we said yes to when we had no infrastructure and no resources to deal with it properly and it was turning up on massive arctic lorries and we're having to borrow people's forklift trucks and store it outside in the yard and it was encroaching onto our neighbors territories etc it was it was just mental but then it's also about what do we do with the food once we've got it so we had to evolve and adapt our operations in order to suit the need. And obviously people were not allowed out. So we set up like drive-throughs where we had like hundreds and hundreds of people in cars and they'd turn up to us and we'd lift a boot and then we'd just throw a lot of food in and leave a donation. And then we started interacting with software and apps across the country that we could interact with customers. So you could pay £10 or £5 on an app for a box of food turn up, swipe the app, collect the box, off you go, and we collect all the data for that. To the point now where we're about to set up our own app and we opened up two supermarkets, one in Doncaster, one in Wakefield, and you know they did some incredible things around providing access to food to people and some level of normality and the interactions and allowing people in isolation to come out and interact and receive food and empowering volunteers and those that were furloughed were able to give their time to come and give back and we created these incredible environments for people to to be human again so these are supermarkets that are supplied with surplus food yeah so we call them share houses so a social supermarket where you can turn up do your shopping and you can pay whatever you want for the food it's also a collection point for your family boxes we do what's called a 10 bob shop which is a 50p store for things that are uh, new goods that are potentially going to waste that are non-food so kind of brick-a-brick type items um we did all sorts all sorts of stuff and it was just it was adapting really to the, the the need out there but also the environment and obviously we had to close our cafes and our, our catering establishments and we, we had to cancel lots of weddings and events that we were had planned and, I, and everybody did i'm not saying that we were unique to that i mean everybody suffered especially hospitality and then we just focused on making sure that all this food that we were getting somehow went out uh, to people that needed it in the safest and most efficient and economical manner. Like I said, to the point now where we've managed to streamline our operations into something that we think going forward will allow people to continue that. And that's just a consequence of what happened with COVID. And it, it helped us to build up amazing relationships with people that we couldn't even get to some of the biggest suppliers and food manufacturers in the world were contacting us and saying what can you help and it was like uh, credit to all the team to to be mentioned in some of these conversations 
and also as well the rhetoric coming out of these organizations were very different whereas before they were very kind of shy and somewhat scared of even talking about the fact that they had any surplus and a lot of the bigger charitable organizations dealt with exclusive licenses where they wasn't allowed to mention where the food had come from or they had to remove certain packaging so the public weren't aware of where the food has come from whereas kind of covid onwards from march 2020 they loved shouting out about it and they loved the fact that we had all this exposure and all this media attention and we were very very loud in our social media and some of our posts were getting anything up to a million hits and they wanted us to go out and they were kind of encouraging us and you know somewhat being slightly forceful to tell us to tell the world that they were not wasting food and they were giving it to real job projects and they were allowing us to do these things with it with no stipulations attached which was something that was very new to us so it's really really changed that and then from a customer perspective millions of people all over the country came together supported one another fed one another went to chemists and got medicine for each other got to know our neighbors better and all those people were receiving donations of food that would have been surplus now prior to covid we were turning our nose up at this stuff because it was seen as waste whereas now it became the norm so it helped us change our kind of behaviors and patterns towards what was technically classed as surplus food prior but what we've always been championing is it's just food that cannot be sold by somebody but it's still food and and now to the point where people are accepting of it and understand it's there so it's allowed us to, it gives us a great platform now to go out and start education and teaching people as to why this food exists uh, and it exposed us to a whole new demographic of people that probably didn't know about us before absolutely and it yeah i think it's amazing that in the year where you've had obviously there have been negatives but there have been so many positives and new things that you've set up as a consequence you just mentioned actually that you are doing really well on your social media and I've seen like your Facebook page in particular has a lot of followers and I wondered if there is like a strategy there about reaching people and getting your message out there I really wish there were but it is completely organic and it's usually because of the language that I use when I interact with, with the public I know how social media works. I've been doing it for the Real Jumper Project myself personally for the seven years now since it started. I've been managing our Facebook accounts and uh, I've only recently handed over Twitter and Instagram. But Facebook especially, we've always had that really close engagement with the general public through the posts that we put out there. And I've always been quite tactical in terms of the language that I use. So rather than trying to do it in order to gain followers and likes, we did it in order to try and gauge exposure of the project, but because we have food that we need people to come and help us with. So our language was, please come and help us by getting this food because otherwise it will go to waste. And we really need you to come and help us do that. So we need as many people as possible. So please share it and tell everybody about it. And obviously if people see food and think, oh, wow, I can go down and like get a car full of food and just give a donation. I'm going to tell so-and-so, oh, look at this. And, you know, and, and that happened organically, but it was because of the kind of tactile language that we used to encourage people to do that rather than tactically going out and trying to create these posts to, 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 for that consequence. And obviously with the media as well that we post out there, and because we're very, very connected to people locally, people are aware that we're not just a, gr a group of people who hide behind a logo. You know, they know who the people are, they're connected with them, they're friends and family with them. And when you come and volunteer, you're also part of that as well. And um, I think social media is a it's been good in the sense that it's allowed us to do that and grow and expose and it's a free tool. It's incredibly good. It's negative in the sense that you cannot always control the rhetoric of how people will react. And sometimes it gets out of hand and obviously we know about trolls and 
you know, people are keyboard warriors and we've, we've suffered some of that and that's really difficult. And it's also really difficult as well when the perception of what you do and this sense of entitlement that we have, especially in the UK, is very, very hard to manage. And we've had to make mistakes on social media in order to make sure that we didn't do it again. So, for example, when we did our boxes, we used to take a picture of the box every day of what you would get and put it on social media. And people would then complain because they didn't get something that was in the box. Um, it's like, I didn't get that custard when I got my box. It's like, that's because there's only one of them left. And that was just the one that we had for that bloody picture. So we had to really manage that, the expectations and the, and the entitlement as well. Of, uh, you know, there were times where we'd get meat or animal protein in. And obviously people want to come down and get a box that's got cheese and dairy and, and, and meat and stuff in it. I don't, um, but there's a lot of people that do. And the, we might have got like, say, 30 steaks, but we've got 100 boxes. And people come down and the first 30 people will probably get steak in their box, depending on what their needs were. So, you know, minus the vegetarians and the, and the plant-based diets, we might get to about 40, 45, and then the rest of them wouldn't get the meat in it, but they'll probably get more of other stuff. And the amount of complaints that we used to get or the amount of levels like I didn't get me or I was first in the queue and you know I didn't get this. And so social media is really difficult from that perspective because we've got that really close engagement and we interact so personally with our customers that it's really, really hard um, to the point where I had to stop and remove myself from social media because I was reacting and then obviously I shouldn't say. But again, it allowed us to get us that level of exposure and uh, around the projects at the same time as providing people with food. On the same subject, I wondered you ever also have to deal with either backlash or an effect from other stuff that's going on that isn't related to your project. So, for example, we know like in the news at the moment, there's been a lot about the school contractors that have been delivering food to people on free school meals that hasn't been adequate. Is there any backlash from that onto your organisation? Yeah, I mean, everything that happens around the world, we have been involved in. So I think the first example was around pre-referendum, so 2016, maybe 2015, 2016, and we had a cafe in Amley, and there was all these issues around immigration, and we went outside and we painted the walls white, and we wrote, refugees welcome, everybody welcome, and you can Google that and you can find that picture now, and it went completely viral to the point where right-wing extremists were threatening to bomb and kill us and you know we were being interviewed by cameras live and people were just stopping their cars and getting out and threatening to hurt us and threatening to paint over it and all this kind of stuff and it was you know it was just for me the biggest point of it was everybody's welcome as well as refugees as well as the people that were living locally we wanted to get the message out that this was an inclusive space and it backlashed in the sense that we probably polarized a lot of people uh, because of that message but it definitely gives us a lot of exposure and it's happened since then really and anything that goes on politically and around the world where it's to do with injustice from a social perspective racial injustice uh, to things like black lives matter and you know anything else that happens politically around the world somehow ends up revolving around what we do socially and environmentally and yeah the, the school meals thing you know, we've been working with schools since 2016. I, I think I have a very, very good understanding of what happens in schools and how and why it works uh, in the sense of food provisions. We have become so focused on the amount of food that people are receiving, not the fact that people are in the positions where they're having to receive it. 
So why are families going hungry? Why are children turning up to school hungry? Why can't parents put food on the table rather than focusing on a picture of maybe a lack of food that, you know, or, or something that wasn't of a, of a decent value? And, you know, we've been working with schools and I, I, I know head teachers personally as friends, as well as been working with some on a professional level for, for years now. And schools have become so dependent to provide above and beyond what they do academically to the point where teachers are absolutely exhausted because they've become social workers and food providers and therapists with no extra training or no extra budgets. They've just done it as human beings. And because they're at the heart of our communities, the, the expectation is that they just carry on providing that from breakfast clubs to after school dinner clubs to further provisions during lunchtime to becoming food banks, you know, it, and we all kind of want to judge a picture because we felt like it wasn't as much food as what people should receive rather than going, hang on a minute, why are schools having to do this? Why are people put in positions where they're having to go to schools to receive food? Like, why are they not in a position to purchase themselves? Why are they not in a position to gain access to it in a maybe a, a much more, um, maybe a less stigmatized way? You know, why should people have to do this? And we don't focus on those things. And I know the reality of what happened during this period. Some of the posts that were going around on social media were not entirely accurate. And um, a lot of the catering suppliers were tarred with the same brush. I work closely with two now as a consequence of that, who have gone above and beyond to provide not only enough food, but also nutritionally balanced food, fruit and vegetables and, and good quality and good value products and and looking to work with us even further uh, not only to redistribute surplus food that may come about in the future but also to look at prevention and much more kind of ethical responsible access to food which is which is incredible but there are some companies out there that made profit off of it and they probably made a lot more because of the amounts that they were providing to families and rightly so they should be called out but unfortunately the whole industry was called out and it wasn't the whole industry that was doing that but I just think it just took our focus away again from what is going on politically, where there are families that are struggling and some children are going to school for their school lunch. And the last time they had a hot meal was their school lunch the previous day. Nobody's going, actually, instead of just dealing with plastering over the cracks and dealing with the immediate problem, when are we going to start coming up with solutions to stop this from happening in the future? Because I can guarantee you right now, Ellen, that December 2021, the same thing is going to happen when children go on their Christmas holidays. There will be an issue around holiday hunger. There will be an issue around school vouchers. There will be issues around children and families going without. It will continue to happen year on year because all we do is plaster over those cracks. I think what's happening now is because of the relationships that we've started to forge with suppliers, contract caterers, and people that are aligned with our principles and our ethics, um, hopefully we can start being the catalyst for some kind of change. But politically, nothing's going to happen unless the government decide it's going to do and nothing's going to happen whilst people are still making profit because unfortunately when retail and the food industry is making profit one they don't care about who gets what and secondly they definitely don't care about their waste because food waste will definitely stop tomorrow if some of those profit margins were hit a little bit more heavily than what they have been recently yeah definitely i've I think we've not actually got that much time left now so there's a couple of questions that I always like to finish on for everybody. Uh, first one is just what are your plans for this year in terms of personal plans, in terms of plans for the real junk food project, anything exciting coming up? 
Yeah, so we streamlined operations. We hope to launch an app soon, and we will hopefully be going national in 2021, which means we'll be creating hubs up and down the country that people can have access to food through people locally, which will hopefully be financially incentivized as well through the model that we're trying to create. So that's really exciting for us. And, you know, we will come out of this situation, and when we do, we'll probably at the front line to become one of the uh, nation's largest environmental caterers because we've got all the infrastructure in place and still got the personnel in place. And obviously the hospitality industry was hit very hard and we necessarily wasn't. So we're in a very, very good position to hopefully be at the forefront of that one coming out of this pandemic. Personally, there's a few things. I'm working on a few little projects. I've been invited to some projects at local authority and government level, as well as I think I've got an idea to get rid of homelessness forever. Uh, I suffered as homelessness as a kid and I think I've come up with a project that might hopefully solve homelessness. So I've got that. Yeah, I think you just casually dropped that on the end. Oh, I think I've got an idea to solve. Yeah. Just casually, just casually going about, you know, stopping homelessness, solving the world's problems. Um, but yeah, I've just moved to a new house. I've got a, a young family and obviously spending more time not at work and having more time to myself and to my family and enjoying that. And like I said, writing a book and who knows, a film may come out of it as well because we've had a few inquiries. Yeah, so it's just really exciting, really an exciting year for us. I, I'm quite proud of the fact that 2020 was a very good year for me personally and professionally. We we dealt with the consequences of a global pandemic and we came out on the other side in a better position. And you know, hopefully that will inspire and empower people to also think that they can be they can do the same as well. So yeah, 2021 for us is is looking very positive. Absolutely. And that kind of brings me up to what I was going to ask you next, which is just if you could give any advice to anyone that was either starting out their career or if it was some, maybe if you could speak to your younger self, knowing what you know now, what advice would you like to give? Well, I'm glad you said what advice because a lot of people say to me, what would you say to your younger self if you go back? And I always say I wouldn't say anything to him. I'd just give him a hug. Um, I think my 10 year old self needed that and they didn't get it and uh, probably wouldn't have ended up where I ended up if he did get a hug, uh, which is really, really difficult for me to say. But advice wise, there's some really key things that you learn as an adult. I'm 35 now and I've got children in the house and uh, there's some things now that I would teach my son who's seven, just things like saving money. I blew and wasted so much money on just nothing, you know, even just to put a little bit away because in 10 years time that amounts to something significant. Um, the struggles of going through collating a deposit to buy a house, you know, all those things would have been made much easier if I'd have started serving at 18 uh, or when I started work. But also just like, I think the message that we're trying to deliver as a project now around kindness, I do a lot of speeches around it and what it means. And first and foremost, what kind of catches people out of it is kindness for us isn't about how we interact with each other and being kind to the planet and being kind to animals and all those kind of things first and foremost it's about being kind to yourself and and what does that look like and how can you be kind to yourself because i think all the other things come as a consequence of being kind to yourself we will eventually and inevitably be kind to one another and to each other if we are much much kinder to ourselves because we're the nation of people being kind to themselves looking after themselves and their mental health and their physical health as well so i think i would go back and just say like focus on those things and there's no need to go into self-destructive mode and you know, a lot around centering. I do a lot around work on trauma in young people, and I do a lot of research and reading on stuff. And it's really interesting what they're doing in other countries, especially in uh, South Asia and across Europe, about how they really focus on mental health in young people and about kind of nurturing their mental health before they start nurturing them academically. So I'd really, really like to go back and give myself advice around 
how I interact with people, conflict resolution, uh, being kind to myself, just even things like treating other people, you know, with respect, especially women. You know, I grew up here with a, a father that wasn't a good role model, and I had no respect for females whatsoever until the last couple of years. Uh, in all, in every sense, in every in every matter, and definitely tell my son now to always treat uh, the person that he's in a relationship with, regardless of which way he chooses to go, or who he is, to always treat the other person with respect, no matter what, because I I value that much more now later in life than I did do as a younger person, uh, and I think he'll become a better person for it. I think they are all really, really good pieces of advice and especially they all kind of link to your main point about being kind to yourself and looking after yourself first and then I guess everything else follows. So thank you so much for speaking to me today. I know that you are very busy. If people want to reach out to you, where is the best place for them to contact you? So they can go to our website, so trjfp.com. You can find my links and my, my email address on there as well. Social media as well, all platforms we're on at, at TRJFP Project. I think it's classed the, the, the handle, but I'm, you know, I, I have my own social media page as well that people can reach out at Adam Smith or Mr. Junk Food Chef as well is the one that I use for my Twitter handles, etc. as well. But yeah, I'm quite an accessible person and so is the project. And I guess if they're just yeah, typing man who feeds people with waste food they'll eventually find me because that's what generally people are listening to London is not. <laughs> thank you so much no thank you I appreciate it Helen you've just been listening to an episode of Mad Influence which was recorded remotely with music by Joseph McDade Thank you so much to everyone who has reached out with positive feedback recently. If you do get a chance, it would mean a lot if you could please rate and review the podcast as that will help other people to find it. Next Friday's guest is someone who has had an incredible 50-year career and has been interviewed by the likes of The Oprah Winfrey Show, Time and The New York Times. And they will be here chatting to me on this podcast. If you subscribe to Mad Influence, you'll be the first to hear it.